Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again uh, on this Lord's Day for your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit which inspired it, you would come and illumine our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us as we begin this new year. Lord, that you would encourage us uh, in your grace, in your gospel, and also, Lord, that you would challenge us to uh, recommit ourselves to your purposes in the world and the callings that you have on our lives. So, Lord, help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we have a great passage this morning from our gospel reading. It's the only passage in our gospels that tells us what Jesus was doing between all the birth stories that we've read over the last week and a half uh, and his beginning of his public ministry, his baptism, and the beginning of his preaching. Uh, we often wonder, I mean, if you're, if you're like me, you've often wondered, like, what was Jesus doing that whole time? Why, did, why was it when he was 30 years old that he began his ministry? Why not earlier? And we have those sorts of questions. And, and Luke is the only gospel writer who wants to answer any of that for us. And I think the answer that he gives us actually is sort of a, uh, it's, it's paradigmatic of, of what we're supposed to understand Jesus was doing the entire time. This, we get this one glimpse of Jesus at 12 years old depending on the Jewish tradition, either having just become a, a man or on the verge of becoming a man, a son of the covenant, uh, Luke wants to tell us that Jesus, even at 12 years old, even as a, what we would consider a young child, uh, he was about God's work in the world. He was about the affairs of his father. He was about his father's business. And it serves, especially as we look out at 2023, it serves as an example for us, a challenge for us to ask ourselves, are we committed to the purposes of the Lord? Are we about our Father's business? Now, if you look at um, verse 49, the end of verse 49, and we're going we're gonna to come back to this, but just let me point it out to you. So Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And if you're looking at the ESV, you're going to have a footnote there. In my Bible, it's footnote four. In, in the Pew Bible, it's footnote three, where it says, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Or, footnote, about my father's business. So I think actually Luke has that double meaning. Jesus has that double meaning. And I'm going to make a case for that as we go. But for now, let's just think about what is Jesus doing? He's preparing himself to do the work that God has called him to. So you can see this as we look. Uh, verse 40, the end of our previous story, and verse 52, the end of our story, bracket out this passage that we've read. And both places... It says that Jesus grew in wisdom, that he was increasing in wisdom, and that he grew in wisdom. The Lord Jesus, in his humanity, as true man, learned and grew and studied God's word and, and learned by experience and learned what it meant to apply God's word in various situations. And that is the first thing that we can see that Jesus was doing. What was Jesus doing between the birth narrative and his, the beginning of his public ministry? He was preparing himself by studying the word of God. Now, that might seem like a mystery to us. He's the, the second person of the Trinity. The, he's true God. He knows everything. He's omniscient. Yes, according to his divinity, but according to his humanity, he used his intellect. He used his memory. He used his creative capabilities, just like you and I do. And in fact, I think that's an important, just like we prayed in our colic, that's an important part of Jesus taking on our humanity because he's Everything that he redeems, he res uh, everything that he takes on, he redeems. So he takes on our intellect. You know, our intellect, we're, we have amazing powers of, 
uh, comprehension and logic and creativity and problem solving. But, but even our intellect is tainted by sin. And so Jesus, true God, takes on a human intellect and uses it the way it's meant to be used and restores it after the pattern that God created it to be used. And so he takes on an intellect as true man, and he does it for us. He, he pays the, uh, the, the way for our intellect, our mind, to be restored when we come to faith in Jesus. He's using that intellect to prepare for God's purpose in the world. You see in verse 41, they went up to Jerusalem every year at Passover. The first way that Jesus grows in wisdom, that he's prepared, getting prepared for this ministry, is by the family that he's a part of. In verse 41, they go up to Passover. Uh, in verse 42, it says that this was their custom, as they did every year. It was their custom to go up to Jerusalem on the Passover. Now, the law only requires that men go up for the Passover, but this was a devout Jewish family, and so Mary and even the children are going up to Jerusalem at this high holy time. Their rhythms, the rhythms and customs of their life are shaped by God's ordinances and their relationship to God and their uh, sense of identity as God's people. It's part of their annual rhythm. It's part of who they are. As we look out at 2023, it makes me think about my family and my customs and my rhythms. Are they shaped by God's ordinances? Are they shaped by God's commands? Are they shaped by the message of the gospel? Or are they shaped by that first college football game in September and that national championship in the second week of January? Are they shaped by the Super Bowl Sunday? Are they shaped by the beginning of spring training at the end of February, the beginning of March? Are they shaped by the school year? Are they shaped by the calendar of the world that kind of seeps in and we begin to count time, not by the gospel story, but by the story that the world is telling us? Now, you know, football and school and all those things, none of those things are sinful, but we have an opportunity today especially to reflect and say, is my time, is my, what are my rhythms, what are my customs, and are they shaped by God? Or are, do I not even know what they're shaped by? And how can I make intentional choices to realign the sort of rites of passage and the passing of years with God's purposes in my life and in the life of my family? That's what Mary and Joseph were doing, and that shaped Jesus and helped him to grow in wisdom. But it wasn't just happening to Jesus. He also was choosing to grow in wisdom. As you look at verse 43, it says, the feast had ended, and as the group was returning to Nazareth, Jesus stayed. Now, it's important. It doesn't say Jesus was left behind. It says Jesus stayed. He chose to stay in the temple so that he could learn, so that he could ask questions and engage in that dialogue, which was the style of learning in, the, in their day. He could engage in that back and forth and understanding how to apply God's word to various situations. And obviously, that's going to uh, pay off when he begins his public ministry and he begins preaching, right? He's going to be saturated in the word of God. Almost everything that comes out of Jesus' mouth is Bible. Now, there's no uh, critique of Mary and Joseph here for Jesus having chosen to stay behind and them not realizing it. And doesn't give, Luke doesn't give us details of, of how that's the case, but maybe as a, as a parent you can relate. There might have been a time where, you know, you left the ball field or you left the mall or you left church and you realize, hey, we, we only have three when we should have four. We only have one when we should have two. 
Um, or, you know, us, you only have, we only have five, and we should have seven. We've left two behind. Um, you know, things like this happen in life, but it was also a different world. They traveled, when they went up to Jerusalem and came back, they traveled in these large extended families. And so it would have been easy for Mary and Joseph to, to miss Jesus. And some have suggested that maybe the men and the women were actually separated from one another. And, and they'd done that thing that maybe you've done as a parent. Oh, I thought he was with you. And your wife says, oh, no, I thought he was with you. Uh, and you don't realize until, you know, the day's gone by. So there isn't a rebuke on Mary and Joseph. The, the emphasis is Jesus stayed. That's the emphatic main verb of this sentence. Jesus stayed. He wanted to stay and to dig in. He wanted to study and debate and interpret and apply the scriptures. And when they come and they, they look for him, after three days they find him, that's what they find. They discover the 12-year-old Jesus sitting in the midst of the teachers of the law, asking and answering questions. And people are amazed. You know, Luke has told us that he's going to be the Savior, the son of David, the king. Well, the, the, the king under the law is supposed to be the one who makes his own copy of the law and hides it in his heart, and who, out of all the people of Israel, is the one who is most devoted to the Scriptures. And Jesus is living that out as he chooses to stay in Jerusalem. But it's not just that he reads the Bible and interprets the Bible and knows how to tell other people what they should do with the Bible. In verse 52, it says that he submitted himself to them. Verse 51, he submitted himself to them. Uh, fifth commandment, right? You shall honor your father and mother that it may go well with you in the land. Jesus was not only learning the law and learning how to apply the law, but learning to obey the scriptures. Now, there's a couple of points of application for us with Jesus's model here because People in our day love to pit Jesus against the Old Testament, don't they? They love to say, oh, the, the old, God in the Old Testament is so wrathful and angry and blah, 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 but Jesus is so meek and mild and kind and, and sort of unoffensive. Or they, they'll say, um, you know, on this ethical question, oh, Jesus was just about an ethic of love. And, and I want to say, have you looked at any of the words of Jesus? Because almost everything that comes out of the man's mouth is Scripture, Whenever they ask him a question, he says, have you not read? Over and over and over again, have you not read? When you look at the words of Jesus, here's, here's what the words of Jesus about the Bible. He says it's inspired that God speaks in the Bible, that it is completely true, that it reveals God and reveals God's purposes, and that it should be believed because it is authoritative. That's what Jesus says about the Bible. And so don't ever pit the Bible against Jesus, the Old Testament against Jesus. But maybe, maybe more for our practices, and especially as we look out at the year to come, what, does, what place of priority does the Bible have in your life? Are you like me who, um, maybe you're at that point sometimes where there's something going on, you know, and you want, you want a verse that fits your situation, right? And you go find the verse, and then you read it, and you go, I don't, I don't, like, I know what it, sh I know how I should feel. I know what I should think, but it's sort of not really landing. What do I do about that? You know, do you, do you just say, well, I guess, I guess it doesn't work. You know, the Bible's for 2,000 years ago. It really isn't for today. Or do you, do you hold on to that word and keep coming back to it throughout the day or keep coming back to it throughout the week? Do you say, I know, I know that there's truth in here. I know that there's help in here because this is God's word. Jesus said this is God's word. Jesus says that when I read this, I'm hearing God's word. Do we have that sort of 
perspective? Does the Bible have a priority in our life? As we look out at this year, what are you going to do to recenter the Word of God in your devotional life, in your family's life, in, in the life of when you, when you make big life decisions? Are you considering the, the principles of Scripture, or are you just thinking, am I going to make more money? Do we want to live there? Are the schools good? Etc. Jesus, even at 12, chose to stay, to dig in, to plant his feet firmly in the scriptures. You know, when I, I was just ordained, uh, you know, a week and a half ago, and before ordination, we're, we're all called to go on a silent retreat and to spend time in prayer and preparing, sort of preparing our hearts and minds and reflecting on, on what, how God has brought us to this place and, and opening ourselves up to what God is calling us in the future. And to be totally honest with you, what I spent most of the time, the sort of narrative that was running in my mind during that silent retreat was all my inadequacies, all, all the ways that I needed to grow as a leader, all the ways that I needed to grow as a, as a husband, as a father, as a disciple. It was, it was a laundry list of things that were reasons that I wasn't good enough, and I wasn't, I wasn't skilled enough, I wasn't equipped enough. And God blessed me so much because in midday prayer and evening prayer and morning prayer, Scripture after scripture after scripture just kept bringing home to me, just trust my word. Just trust my word. Psalm 119 was the midday psalm. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that very same evening, it was the psalm appointed for that day. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Isaiah chapter 62 was the evening Old Testament reading. God says, I set a watchman on the, on the walls of Zion to cry out in warning and in promise. God put a preacher there. And Revelation chapter 12 was the New Testament reading in the morning. And, and it's that weird thing about the dragon and the woman, and she goes off into the wilderness and all that. And, but then it says, and the saints overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and because they loved not their lives unto death. Preach. I just felt God, just, God just kept saying, preach, just trust my word. Just trust my word. Preach my word teach my word, build your life on my word, trust me. And then the ordination sermon. Bishop Neal preached the ordination sermon. He was talking about Acts 6 and the appointment of deacons and that, that tension between the, the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenist Jews. And, and he said, here's a direct quote. He said, the answer in many of these church conflicts is good teaching. Grace-filled, biblical teaching is the way through most relational conflicts. And I just felt like God just tied it up in a bow and said, okay, did you, do you get it? Do you, do you get it? Your, your ministry is not going to depend on your personal abilities, your personal charisma, your personal growth, your personal character even. It's going to be built or not built on your adherence to my word. So where are you at as you look at it this year? Is the Bible central? Does your life orbit around what God says? Or is God just one voice among a cacophony? Jesus is absolutely committed to his father's affairs. He's preparing himself to do the work that God has for him. He's in the house of the Lord to learn about the word of the Lord. But I suggested to you that there's a double meaning in that phrase. Did you not know that I must be in the house of my, of my father? Because the Greek is actually ambiguous. The Greek literally just reads, I must be about the of my father. That's all it says. And from context, you would you would 
fill in probably the temple. But then notice that in verse 50, it says that they did not understand what he said. What's to not understand if what he means is, I must be in the house of my father, when Mary has been told by an angel and Joseph has been told by an angel that this child is from God and from the Holy Spirit. They don't understand because there's a deeper meaning. Because he's not just talking about the house of the Lord, he's talking about the affairs of the Lord, the business of the Lord, which is what's in your footnote. And if you know the King James Version, that's what it says there. The, the business of the Lord. They did not understand the saying. They did not understand that what Jesus was doing that day was preparing himself for what God had called him to do and indeed sent him to do. In, a, in the epistle reading, Paul tells us what the affairs of the Father are. That in Christ, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That he's predestined us and adopted us and set us aside for holiness and given us the Holy Spirit as a, as a down payment on the inheritance and that he will make us part of the great restoration of all things when he unites all things in Christ. And there's, that, there's, a, there's three refrains in there. To the praise of his glory, by the purpose of his will, and in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Jesus, in this day, when he's 12 years old, in the house of the Lord, he was preparing himself to do the work, the affairs of his father. He was preparing himself for that day when he would ascend Calvary and pay for sin. He was about his father's business. And it, notice he says, about my father's business. He's, even as he's 12 years old and learning the word of God, he nevertheless has this absolute unique relationship to God as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son. There were people in Jesus' day who would, who would talk about God as a father or maybe even say our father, but Jesus is absolutely unique because he says my father. He has this confident knowledge of his intimate relationship with the Lord. He is the true God, the eternal son, and he came to do the works of his father, to be about the business of God. Now he calls us to take up our cross, to demonstrate in how we live and to declare by what we say that God is, is real, that Jesus is alive, and that God is going to make all things new. And that we can be restored, we can be part of God's plan to make all things new by faith in Jesus. That's the vocation that we've been given. That's the, the application for us as we look at 2023. What are we going to do to demonstrate and declare the kingdom of God? Jesus says, I must be about my father's affairs. He's prepared himself for it and he's, he's committed to it. I must be about my father's affairs. This is another reason why I think there's a double meaning in that phrase, in my father's house and in uh, about my father's affairs. Because if you look at verse 49 when he says, I must be about it. If you look in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus uses the word must or necessary, that's our English translation of the same Greek word. If you look at Jesus' use of that word to refer to his own sense of calling and ministry, there's 10 times. So the first one is here, where it's sort of ambiguous. The next one is when he talks about preaching, and then the next eight are about his suffering and death. So for instance, Luke 9, 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Even at 12 years old, Jesus knew why he came. He was born to die. And he must, he was, he was so committed and tapped into God's purposes in the world 
he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer. See, even at 12 years old, Jesus knew that in the future there would be another journey to Jerusalem at the time of Passover where he would go missing for three days while he was doing the work of his father. Jesus is always about the affairs of his father. He must do this work of defeating death and paying for sin and rising again victoriously. This past weekend, I was privileged to go to the Gator Bowl. Notre Dame and South Carolina played, and Notre Dame won, go Irish. And, uh, and it got me thinking about, in sports, sometimes we talk about an athlete having the will to win, right? They have this internal drive, this like insatiable hunger to win. Or, or maybe we think about, um, you know, someone who, who's had a, a, a very hard illness or you know, gets lost in the woods or is in an accident and it's just like a miracle and we might say that they have the will to survive. They just have this, this guttural, deep drive to hang on to life no matter what. Or we might talk about an artist who writes a song or, or creates a work of art and they have this drive to create. Like it just comes out of them. When Jesus says, I must be about the works of my Father, I want to suggest to you that what he's saying is that he has a deep, instinctual, guttural, insatiable drive to do the work of redemption, to to take himself to the cross, to pay for our sins, you and me, and to be raised again so that we can be reconciled to God. If I can sum it up, he has the will to save. He deeply desires that we would be reconciled to him. He was born to die. And every moment of his life, from those beautiful infancy narratives that we read on Christmas, all the way to today, he's always about his father's business. He lives forever to intercede for you. And now he calls us to join his work in the world, to be about the affairs of his father. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for Jesus. that you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That before the foundation of the world, you set your love upon us. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came into our world, as the creed says, for us and for our salvation. He was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. So Lord, would you encourage us with this good news that Jesus must do your work and bring salvation to us. And then in that, in that place of safety and security, Lord, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit and challenge us to take up our cross daily and follow you. Lord, help us in this coming year to rest securely in your grace and to follow you faithfully and submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.